Larkin had a series of successful strikes in early 1913 and wages in the city were pushed up as a result by about 20 to 25% and a lot of employers were on the run. Uh, he then targeted two of the main employers in the city. One was Guinness's and the other was the Dublin United Tramway Company. He recruited most of the people in the Dublin United Tramway Company in the summer of 1913 because they were obviously buoyed up by the success they'd seen the union had had in other employments. But then Murphy, who had been ill for some considerable time that year, he returned to work, discovered this situation, and acted as he often did very decisively. He, he called a meeting of the workers in July and warned anyone who was in the transport union to leave it because he wouldn't tolerate membership and he'd sack anyone who was a member. And by the end of August, the majority of transport worker members of the company had been sacked. And those that were left basically went to Larkin and almost begged him to bring them out. And he wasn't too happy to do so because he realised with the loss of so many members, he was in quite a weak position. But nevertheless, he agreed to bring out the remaining workers and they came out in the last week in August. And Larkin actually, because they were so weak, the normal way you'd start a tramway strike would be to have mass pickets at the depots to prevent the trams from leaving, but he knew that wasn't possible. So what he did was he picked 9.40 a.m. on August the 26th and chose a time deliberately because he wanted to maximise disruption on the tram lines. So it was a time when most remaining transport members were in the vicinity of O'Connell Street, which was the sort of hub of the system. And once you stop a tram, all the other trams behind it can't move either. So by stopping trams uh, when his members were closest to the centre was a way of disrupting the whole system. And it became one of sort of the iconic uh, moments in, in the whole dispute. But it was, it was actually a sign of weakness, not strength. And within 40 minutes, Murphy had most of the trams running again because he had contingency crews on hand to take over the trams. That caused a lot of frustration amongst the workers. There was some stoning of trams, and, and trams did not run after dark uh, as a result of that, and those that did run had heavy police escorts. By the weekend, because of all the trouble, Larkin had called a mass meeting in O'Connell Street, and uh, it was banned by the, uh, the Viceroy, Lord Aberdeen, uh, and uh, Larkin said he was going to defy that ban. Now, in fact, more moderate elements within the trade union movement in Dublin decided it would be a bloodbath if there was a, uh, a mass protest in the city centre by trade unionists in support of the tram workers. So what they did with the agreement of the government and with the police, the Dublin Metropolitan Police, uh, they decided to have a rally in Croydon Park, which is roughly where Merino housing estate is now. Uh, but and that worked to the extent that about 10,000 trade unionists actually gathered at Liberty Hall and marched out there. Larkin at this stage was on the run, but he issued a statement to the papers, which was carried by all the papers, including Murphy's papers, saying he was going ahead with his protest anyway. He managed to smuggle himself with some assistance into the Imperial Hotel, which was owned by Murphy, and uh, he made his dramatic appearance on a balcony. Now, amazingly, the DMP had lined uh, O'Connell Street on both sides with uh, men. In fact, they needed so many men, there were large contingents of RIC there to supplement the DMP as well. Uh, and once Larkin appeared on the platform, senior officers, all the officers of rank of inspector and above, all rushed into the to arrest Larkin which meant there was nobody left on the ground uh, above the rank of sergeants uh, in charge of anything. And there was a Sergeant Richardson 
who was in charge of the group outside the Imperial Hotel. The, the crowd had to be pushed back. So he told his men to drive the crowd back. Now, his men actually drew their batons and, and, and attacked the crowd, basically. Uh, now, this crowd wasn't made up primarily trade unionists because they'd all gone off to Croydon Park. Um, lots of the people fled across the street towards the GPO and towards the back entrance of the Irish independent newspapers. And there was a heavy police contingent there in case there were any attacks on the independents. So when they saw this crowd surging towards them, they took it that this was a deliberate attempt to break through and attack the premises of the Irish independents. So they countercharged. And a large number of people were caught between these two groups of policemen. Um, and that was where most people were injured. We'll never know the numbers, but somewhere between four and 600 people were injured. But that sparked off a whole series of uh, violent acts in the city because when the trade unionists marched back from Croydon Park and heard what was going on, they joined in general rioting. And at one stage, uh, lancers had to be called out into O'Connell Street uh, and deployed there. And the West Kent Regiment was deployed in Inchy Corps to help the police uh, maintain order. So it was a very ugly situation, but the British Trade Union Congress was being held in Manchester the next day, which was the Bank Holiday Monday. Uh, so all the delegates going to that conference, uh, all the newspapers, British newspapers, had this famous picture um, of the people of people being battened in O'Connell Street, and there was uproar at that. Um, there was also an Irish delegation managed to get over to, uh, to Manchester. Um, and they addressed the, the uh, conference, and uh, the, the delegates on the floor of the conference overruled the, the uh, platform, basically, and demanded immediate support for the Dublin strikers. And really, that's what made the lockouts what it was, because they pledged so much money uh, and food and clothes and fuel uh, to the strikers that it enabled the strike to continue for five months in the city. Uh, so it posed a huge, unexpected challenge to the employers, um, and it was at that point then that Murphy managed to persuade the bulk of employers in the city to sign a pledge that they would get rid of anyone in the transport union and wouldn't take them back. And they also went that further step of saying to other trade unions in the city that they would also have to give an undertaking. They would never work alongside transport union members to keep their jobs. So that, that pledge was signed by most of those employers on September the 4th. Uh, and things escalated very quickly, and pretty soon nearly every worker in a trade union in Dublin, uh, outside of Guinness's, had been locked out. In Guinness's, Larkin never called out the workers, but the strike continued for several months. When Larkin was uh, arrested and imprisoned, James Connolly came down from Belfast to take over the strike, and, and Connolly arguably made one of the major strategic blunders of the dispute. The employers began to bring in scab labour from provinces and also from Britain and uh, in response he called out all the dockers in the city who were members of Transport Union uh, and the reason that was probably a mistake was that while, while he had the dockers in reserve it was a threat he could use against the employers but once they were called out uh, they they turned from being sort of net contributors to the union funds and the strike fund to being net recipients of the fund so there's a drastic deterioration in the financial situation of the union um, by bringing them out. And it didn't achieve a great deal. It just accelerated the, the, the speed at which strike breakers were brought in. And they were brought in in large numbers from Britain by the Shipping Federation, which was the biggest employer organization in these islands at the time. And they backed uh, Murphy to the hilt. And uh, the Shipping Federation uh, contributed £10,000. So you had a situation where transport union was getting up over £100,000 
in support from the unions, but this much smaller amount was enough to keep the employers going because they would have had reserves of their own. And also it was used quite cleverly, the money. For example, a lot of it was used to provide subsidised transport for smaller employers. They were encouraged to buy motor vehicles to transport their goods, and they discovered very quickly that a truck could do the work of eight or nine or ten horse and carts with a couple of men on board. Another advantage was motorised transport. It was much easier to drive through pickets than it was with a horse and cart. So things like that, which were very innovative, very effective on the employer side. And one reason why a lot of uh, transport workers were never hired back by their employers was, wasn't simply down to vindictiveness or anything at the end of the dispute. It was down to economics that why would you bring, hire back uh, 100 men when 10 men with this, these new vehicles could do the same amount of work. There was a bit of a stalemate up until uh, Christmas. Uh, by then, the British Union support for the Dubliners was beginning to wilt. Uh, there was a special conference held. It was the first conference ever held by the TUC uh, to discuss an individual dispute. There wasn't another one held until the 1980s during the miners' dispute. Um, so it shows you how significant it was. But at that conference, Larkin and Connolly argued very strongly for uh, sympathetic action in Britain. They wanted all goods coming out of Dublin port to be blacked in Britain. And when that was defeated and overwhelmingly defeated, uh, they is a traditional thing of blame Brits. They said the strike would have succeeded if they'd only, TUC had only had the courage to support them in that, which was a bit unfair given all the support they had received in the past from the TUC over the previous few months. It also ignores a key argument, really, which is that Larkin um, had about 50% of the workforce in the Dublin docks unionised. The average figure in Britain itself was 15%. Now, if, if Larkin couldn't stop the movement of goods through Dublin port, there wasn't a hope in hell of the British unions doing it the other side of the channel. But that was a big factor. The other factor which tends to be ignored is that one very important group of workers who never came out in support of the strike were the railway men, because they had been hammered into the ground by William Martin Murphy and in 1911 during the rail strike, and they'd been so uh, uh, hurt by that dispute that they didn't uh, have the resources or the courage or self-confidence to come out in 1913. So while if you could close Dublin port to some extent, goods could still move quite freely by rail and by, by motor transport to other ports. And, and that did happen. Ports uh, as far away as Greenore and Wexford were used uh, and in between to move goods in and out of Dublin. And by 1914, by early 1914, January, February, most workers who could get back to work had been staffed back. Others never got jobs back. Uh, quite a lot probably emigrated as well.